0: Father, thank you for your word. Uh, it seems like um, one little verse is a lot to drag out, but there are so many things that we don't understand because it's not our culture, it's not our language. Um, we have to be reminded of the context and the, um, the grammar and to um, look at the history and whether or not it's literal or figurative and just continue to understand your word better. And so as we spread this out and we look for application Even better yet, we look for proper interpretation from the observation. Um, Father, may we be changed. May this not just be uh, an entertainment or uh, an exercise in futility, but may we be here eager to learn, like newborn babes, desirous to take the word in and to do something with it. And so, again, I ask regularly, but I ask again, that you would change us to be more like Jesus and that we wouldn't wait for other people to do it that we would realize you're asking us um, to lead and to share the gospel and to share our lives and to testify of who Jesus Christ is by our example. So we ask your blessing on our time together, that you alone might be glorified. And We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Last week was very heavy, and I made it heavier by the way I presented it, but it's, it's crucial that we understand. We're on the third uh, of the Beatitudes. They're progressive. They build on each other. The first one was blessed are the poor in spirit. This is uh, recognizing each of us individually that we are spiritually bankrupt, in case you didn't get that, that we are helpless, that we can do nothing for ourselves, spiritually speaking, but we're not brainless I don't want you to misunderstand, the scripture puts responsibility on the individual to receive the truth and to do something with the truth. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is my responsibility. It's not something that God does to me. Even though Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are quoted, uh, the, the text, the grammar does not make faith a gift. Faith is a responsibility on our part to exercise, to, to put our trust in Jesus Christ. So, recognizing we're poor in spirit, recognizing we're at this point where we can do nothing for ourselves, the idea that we're helpless in our position moves to the second one we looked at last week. Blessed are those who mourn, those who are spiritually broken as they recognize their sin. They don't just take it lightly when something happens around them, but worse yet, they do not take it lightly when they're the ones committing the sin. So they have this sensitivity there, and it comes with an honesty. So you go from helplessness on the poor in spirit to an honesty as you mourn, and when you really see what God wants us to see, we mentioned nine different words for sorrow, weeping, mourning in the New Testament. This is the hardest one of all, that it just crushes us when God points out something in our lives that's wrong, that we're not doing right, that we're rebelling against it. And so that's where the mourning comes in, and then he moves to the third one here that we're looking at today: is blessed are the meek. These all, and we're going to look at what that means. But they're they're ultimately, when you process these together, they're a portrait of Jesus Christ. You see Jesus in all of these. As he became man, he was broken. He didn't mourn over his own sin, but he mourned as he took on our sin, it became our the death that. Took, that God um, punished for us. And then when you come here, we're told in Matthew 11 that Jesus Christ is meek or gentle, depending on your translations. This is a characteristic that's his. Turn with me back to Psalm 37. I, don't, I hope that's not hard in your electronic devices. Do they go backwards? Sorry, just trying to be humorous. Psalm 37, verse 7. Okay, keep trying, yeah. The psalmist here is uh, David, and he says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Does that come in handy once in a while? Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evil doers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. And he's trying to bring out here that the the recognition of who is going to um, be in the kingdom of God. In verse 10, "...yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble..." Here's our word. It's, um, and you have a Greek translation of the um, Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. It uses the same word that we have here. "...the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity." It's something that's coming. It's something that God promised to Israel in the present, but she kept failing and failing and failing. I'm reading through Jeremiah right now. I try to go really slow, ponder my way through chapters at a time, and look up things, rabbit trails, and I'm going in there and realizing how often God warned them. Finished up Isaiah a little while ago, and God is trying and trying and trying to get his own people's attention. Who should have known better? And they wouldn't listen. But it's the humble that are going to inherit the land. It was the humble that were going to stay in the land. And just what I read this morning, it was the non-humble that are going to get kicked out. And they did. And Israel today is scattered around the earth. Even though people say they're back in the land, it's not a fulfillment of the prophecies that Scripture talks about. And if you study Israel at all today, you realize that they are atheistic, many of them. They are not following God. So don't confuse what a lot of preachers tell you versus what Scripture says. You want to find out if they're back in the land, go back to the context and realize all the things that are listed there when they're back in the land, this is what it will look like. And none of that's happening today. They're going to be decimated one more time, Jesus Christ will return, then they'll be back in the land. And then the promises that he has given will be fulfilled. But as you wrestle with this passage in here, as you look at the blessing he decides for the humble, he says right off at the very beginning, Blessed are, and I'm kind of breaking it down that way so you understand. Blessed are the gentle. Why? What's going to happen? For they're going to inherit the earth pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Jesus Christ is speaking to Jews in Galilee, to the northern region of the area of Israel, and he's trying to make some very specific things. So when he uses the word blessed, uh, this will be monotonous. It'll be, it'll be another five or six times that I will explain this. Some of you weren't here, and so I need to explain it for that purpose. But to be blessed here is to be happy. It's the simplest way to put this word in modern vernacular. It's spiritually prosperous and that God has favored you. You are fortunate because of God. He has enriched you because of your humility. The Hebrew brings this out as a state of true well-being. This person who's blessed is privileged, and we find as we look at it, it's due to humility. It's due to honesty. It's due to submission. It's due to confession. Is this what your life looks like on a regular basis? Humility, honesty, submission, confession, you keep short accounts with God as, as you go through life and something happens and you, all, you want to blame somebody else, but you realize I can't. I did it. Guilty. The Holy Spirit's convicting me. Sometimes he has to get on, on top of me on my chest and beat on it to get my attention. Not literally figure of speech. But this is what he's looking for in us. In... in um. The the, um, promise from Jesus when you go into John 13, 17, if you know these things, this example that Jesus Christ was setting up, this desire of what he wants us to be, you are blessed or happy if you do them. I think a lot of people today are almost demanding of God, why aren't you blessing me? Why don't you make me happy? And what do you hear back from, from heaven, figuratively speaking? Why don't you obey me? Why don't you submit to me? Why don't you admit your helplessness? Why are not you honest with me about your sin? Why don't you humble yourself? I've told you many times, I don't like being up here. I am nervous to be up here. That's why I keep saying it, to tell you, some of you need to step out of your comfort zone and to pursue things that God wants you to do and stop giving him excuses. This isn't about me. Some people get upset with me when I teach the word or I push a point too hard. And it's not about me. It's not my word that I'm sharing. It's God's word. I just assumed Jesus Christ was standing here sharing it with you. Would that change anything? I hope not. This is his word. He's speaking through individuals as frail and as faulty as we might be at times. But he's speaking through with his word. And he wants us to be blessed. But it comes from obedience to him. To be blessed is to be fundamentally approved by God, pleasing to him. And I think I would stress here for being real as we looked at the earlier characteristics. So I look at my life, and I'm going to make this longer list as I go through here one by one. I look at it and I ask myself, poor in spirit, check or no check? What have I done with that? I go to the next one, mournful over my sin, check or no check? Do I blame one on other people? Do I make excuses? Do I try to get my way out of it, or do I just immediately say guilty? Confess it, let God forgive me, move on. And then I go to the third one we're looking at today. Am I humble before God? Check. This is what this list of Beatitudes is trying to bring out. It gives me an opportunity to go through each one of these very quickly because they don't take up much room and ask myself how am I doing but if I give back faulty answers or if I try to lie to God what do I lose the blessing you see what he keeps saying in front he puts this word it's emphatic it's stressed as Jesus is speaking blessed 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 what are people looking for today Happiness. They're looking for this. But the last thing, and I've had people actually tell me that to my face, the last thing I'm going to choose will be the way God wants me to go. Nope. Not interested. Why not? Well, he takes over. He, he tries to be the boss. He acts like he owns me, like I was bought with a price or something. He acts like he can do it better than I can. But then I want to say, He actually, he loves me. Just like a parent who steps in to protect the child who is foolishly, ignorantly, or defiantly seeking to do something that is not good for them. And when they reach a certain point where the parents go, it's no longer to the child's face because they've run away. They go to their knees, and they're crying out to God, and we underestimate what God will do as we depend on him and cry out to him for our needs. So Jesus is trying to remind them, I want you to be blessed. I want you to be happy. I want you to be favored and privileged. But there's only one way to get it. The world's way does not work. Some of you would say amen to that. Some of you would say nothing. Some of you are very quiet today. Well, yeah. That she said that some think that Jesus or God is going to take their fun away. When your fun is temporary anyway, when your fun is fake, I picked up many people's pieces as a pastor. And then when they realize I share the scriptures and I hold their, hold their feet to the fire, they don't come back. Do you, uh, you ever drown, been caught drowning, you know, as we talked about with this one? Um, and the guy comes out, do you ask him if they're Republican or Democrat when they're rescuing you? Do, do you ask if they're, if they're going to be rough or, or if they're going to be nice when, when they drag you out of the water? This is what people are doing to Jesus Christ, and he's the one trying to rescue them. They had people in World War II from the other side where a ship goes down, and they're swimming in shark-infested waters. And the Americans come up alongside in their boats, and they try to pull them out, and they spit on them and swam away. That's what the world's doing to Jesus Christ today. Now, some of those people were lied to and told what Americans would do to you if they caught you. That's why many jumped off cliffs and committed suicide over in the Far East. They were afraid. This is what's happening today. If we don't go out with the message, the true gospel, the loving gospel of Jesus Christ, they're going to believe the lies that they're being told and what churches try to do. We don't even pass an offering plate. That ought to free up some people. We've had them say that in the past. It didn't pass an offering plate. That's between you and God, and there's a slot over there that goes into a safe location. If you want to give, by all means, you give. But when the scripture tells me that I'm not even to let my right hand know what my left hand's doing, why do I need to know what you're doing? And so, as a pastor for decades, I never knew what anybody gave. And some people were angry about that because they were bragging. They wanted to know. They wanted me to know to recognize them. They're a great person because they gave money, and I'm going. It matters to nothing in light of eternity. But if God has blessed you, what you do with that is. Determined by your decisions and your response to Jesus Christ. I and mean, he's coming in here and he wants them to be blessed, it's a present tense. It's a way of life, here and now, an ongoing lifestyle of happiness and enjoyment. Not like the world. We talked about a bunch of that last week, where you got man-made um, enjoyment from drugs and alcohol and sex and whatever they can come up with. And it's terrible. The whole thing with monkeypox. They're letting you believe. They're passing it around. That anybody can get that anyway. Just like a common cold. And you can't get it that way. It's from prolonged intimate physical contact. And 98% is in one particular group of people in America. They're lying. They want us fearful. They want us to get a new vaccine. They want us dependent on them. That's not how Jesus Christ works. He sets us free. Not like the world, but a happiness that is not dependent on circumstances. It's temporary, short-lived. It's constantly changing what they're offering or what their lives finally get revealed. And it's empty. People have withdrawals from the emptiness of the world. Unfulfilling. It's vain. Doesn't accomplish anything. I've known a lot of people in that category. I had a guy in my office one day, and I've shared many times with you, trying to help him. Eyes rolling up in his head, I'm not an expert, but I said, you're on something. No, 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 I'm no, not on anything. Okay, you got a problem physically that we need to address, and then we can deal with the spiritual side. Of it. No, no, I'm not taking anything. He was a drug addict. Couldn't even share it with me in privacy because I don't go around telling people. Died a while back. Where's the happiness? You got to let God take care of it. You've got to quit depending on the things that you think the world alone can provide. So as you look at this way to God, it takes a perfect life. Look at Matthew 5, 48. Within the Sermon on the Mount, you probably react when I say it takes a perfect life to get to God. Look at verse 48 of chapter 5. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can you imagine that? In the, the end of the first chapter, we have it broken down. A third of the way into this sermon, and he's telling them they've got to be perfect. What do you think they responded to? How do you think they responded? Uh-oh. Some maybe got mad, some got defensive, or some may have said, oh, I can't do that. Well, they understood the word that's being used here is the word teleos. It's a form of the word complete or mature. He's not asking for sinless perfection in the individuals. But as you depend, as the one who's poor in spirit, mournful of your sins, and humble before God, he's able to rescue you out of whatever circumstance you're in and begin to put you on dry land on solid ground and be able to build a relationship with you to where you're no longer the one needing to be rescued and you can become a rescuer for others. And be set free from all these things that you think are the only way to happiness. The way to God, a perfect life. The way to God is very narrow. Look at chapter 7 as he gets into the third part of this sermon. Verse 13, he tells his listeners, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few of those uh, find it. So it's a narrow path. You you don't get a lot of options. You don't get to take many ways to God, as I've heard many times people tell me. Oh, I believe there's many ways to God. What did Jesus say? I am the way. The way. Definite articles we see here with those blessed there is not a lot of ways. And I've tried to explain that to people and show them that it's empty or they're, um, they're being deceived. But he goes on and he says that the wise man, at, at the end of the sermon, right near the end, in chapter 7, verse 24, the, the way to God is to be a wise man. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. Kind of like um, the wolf in Red Riding Hood. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. That rock is Jesus Christ. So the question today, as you look into this, where are you standing? What have you placed your foundation on? The rock, or as he goes on further there to talk about the sand. The rock can handle whatever's coming. We look at the future. We watch America. We go, this is going to be really, really bad. And we panic in a lot of ways. We want to start hoarding food. We want to start um, collecting silver and gold in a tangible form. Uh, we want to get more guns. We, we want to have, uh, have friends that have guns and, and make sure, look maybe even to a compound. When this thing all goes down, we're all heading to this spot. Why? What are we here for? To make sure that we eat? make sure that we can buy and sell, make sure that we can kill somebody trying to hurt us, make sure that we're with a light group that we can feel comfortable with and, and hide out. What are we here for? Jesus could have done that. He could have done that by never leaving heaven in the first place. But he came into the worst of the worst, and he let the Romans crucify him because the Jews demanded it. He wasn't trying to protect himself. He was trying to give himself. And if you've really recognized your poor in spirit and mourning over your sins, you become meek. It's the same thing we're going to do with those around us. We lay down our lives for those in need. We don't try to protect our lives. We may gather some materials, rice, corn, beans, whatever you do with all that. And what we're looking forward to is having everybody over. We've got two wells on our property. And I keep talking about it, but I haven't gotten around to it. I just want to put a hand pump on one of them that is not being used. Tell the neighborhood, you need water, help yourself. But it's to find ways to share the gospel with people. Had somebody outside here when I was leaving this week, working on some of the materials, running off some stuff. He's sitting out there with his dog. So I just started talking to him. And I'm not going to share personal information. He said he was a believer. Gave me some indications that something wasn't right. Gave him a tract, explained some things to him, tried to help him, uh, made myself available on the tracts, my name and my phone number. I'm always looking for ways to try to help people come to Christ. And then if possible, stand on my shoulders and go far beyond anything I've ever done. But this is what's being offered. Blessed are is what he's trying to describe here. The poor in spirit are the losers, the misfits, the outcasts, the undesirables. Not many wise in 1 Corinthians 1. Not many mighty. Not many noble. When I was in third grade, we had a kickball. Kind of, we'd make break up into teams. And they always put the first, second, third graders on one playground and then the bully fourth, fifth, and sixth graders on the other playground. So when you're in third grade, you're in charge. And we'd play kickball. And the teachers sent us out there and let us divide up teams. And when I was younger, I liked to lead. I don't think I ever lost that, but... But teacher was, and I was nice, but when you picked teams, guess what you did? You lined everybody up. You got two captains, whoever were taking turns that day, and they picked. Who was the last to be picked? No, it wasn't always the girls, but it was the kids who couldn't kick a ball. This is just kickball, but sometimes it's coming in. You can get a kind of little spin on it. You can do some things that make it a little harder to hit. You always pick them last. How do you think that made them feel? That has always bothered me as an eight-year-old that I was part of the system. So when I got to sixth grade, I would already changed a little bit. And again, when sixth grade, we had six grade classes at one school because of the county I grew up in was growing so fast. They didn't know what to do with everybody. And so at the school, each class got to have a football team. And that's what our kind of our activity was when we'd go out and have a 45 minutes or whatever to play football. Guess how they picked the teams? Captain in each classroom, you picked the, the who was going to be on your football team. This time I was a little smarter. I picked Charlie. We called him Toad. And I realized he had something going. And when we got out there, this was full contact. It was flagged, that you're just wham, wham, wham. And, and you all think as sixth graders that you can do anything. And, and so we're out there. Here's Charlie. Charlie, would when you put him on the line to block, I pitied the person on the other side. And yet you would never look at Charlie and say, I pick him. He, he's going to do a good job because Charlie didn't come across that way. And I won't describe him in a negative term. Charlie might hear my voice. I loved his attitude. I loved his work ethic. I loved what he did for the team. But he wouldn't have been the one picked, but God had me learn a little bit more that I didn't pick Charlie last. This is the idea of God. When he looks out at the world today, guess how he doesn't pick believers? Based on their... You're really quiet today. Based on their performance, based on their appearance, based on... Their abilities, based on whether or not they buy you an ice cream after the game's over. There's a lot of things that you can base things on, and you get the wrong idea. A team isn't the best team because of athletic ability. A team is the best team because it's unified, and they're playing with all of their heart. And that's what I found out in life, playing football with bigger kids. Bigger kids. And I would hit them as hard as I possibly could And I finally had one kid, after three or four times of doing that, he goes, mercy me. And that's what I was looking for. I was looking for him to recognize that my heart is in this. And you are not going to stop me from rushing. We're talking about kids. What is your heart toward Jesus Christ? Not to prove something. I wasn't out there. Again, I'm a team player. I love volleyball because it's a team sport. I was out there for the team. And my goal was I got to get the guys flags. I wasn't trying to hurt anybody. If I knocked somebody over and the play was done, I'd pick them up. I, I, I didn't, wasn't playing. But there's a lot going on today where I think we think it's all about me. Blessed are the meek, the humble. We'll look at that more in a moment. But it's the poor in spirit if God does not use the NFL or the NBA or any other methods to pick players where you've got to work your way up and prove your value. Then he says, those who mourn, the ones that are deep, heartfelt grief over their sin. Christ didn't call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Matthew 9, 13. Our tendency today, when you go out to share the gospel with people, who do you tend to share with? The ones who aren't going to hurt me. The ones who don't do what? Yell at me or react. React. The ones who don't smell bad, the ones who don't look bad, I'm going to be very selective of how I go about sharing. I'm I'm almost James 3, where I am showing partiality. Why? Again, what am I doing? What team am I on, and what is my goal? Is my goal to do the best for the team of Jesus Christ, or is my goal to impress people with my abilities so I'm going to be selective, so I don't waste my time with people I think, oh, they're never going to believe? I had a friend in college, Bible college. Um, he got saved on the road as a hippie. Long hair, stinky, um, hitchhiking. And this friend of mine at school had picked him up, the dad did, who was a pastor, and he led him to Christ. His name wasn't Toad. His name was Snake. When he got to Multnomah and he played basketball, he would just wiggle in with the ball and go up and score all the time. But you also watched him because in his life, guess what he did for for his work? Guess how he earned money? Cleaned the bathrooms in the men's dorm. He wasn't proud. And when he knocked over somebody, whatever he may even call with a foul, but somebody went down, he was the first one to reach over, pick them up. And I remember hearing people from another school, and these are Bible schools, sometimes whatever that's worth, commenting about him. When he fell down, they'd pick him up, but they didn't pick up anybody else on our team. This is what the world's looking for. This is where that humility comes in. This is the way to God, is when we go down, Jesus Christ goes up. When we have opportunity to to witness, it's not about us. I I remember beach evangelism one time. I was trying to learn how to do it, and this guy's watching me, and I'm writing down stuff because they gave you a clipboard and a questionnaire. It made it a lot easier to ask. It was still hard to go out on the beach and talk to people. But I, I asked him what he was looking for in life. and He goes, peace of mind. And I spelled it P-E-A-C-E. And he's reading it upside down. Did I say it wrong? Yeah. I, I spelled it P-I-E-C-E. Sorry, I, I did it backwards. Like a piece of your mind. And he, he's reading it backwards and upside down. He goes, no, 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 not that kind of piece. And so I've, I filled it in. But I distinctly remember I never did, it, did that again. I never misunderstood how to, how to spell the two words. But... He was paying attention. But that's what he was looking for. Where do you get that from? Only one source. It's Jesus Christ. You can think it's about earning money, building a big house, um, having um, successful children. You can name all these things you think that are, are the way. And I've been talking to somebody recently who walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and they're finally admitting to me they don't think they were saved. They got inoculated early on. It's been really, really hard To turn them around, help them to see how you really come to Christ. But this is what he's after. this, This deep, heartfelt grief over one's own sin. And you can see that in a person's life. You can tell when they reach that point. They're almost rushing you. Okay, hurry up and get to the saving part. Tell me how to get saved. I'm already admitting that I was drowning. I'm already admitting that I hate my life. I hate what I've done. I have nothing to brag about. And I'm humbling myself before God. This is what Jesus is trying to explain. So he describes here, blessed are the meek. Uses a definite article. You kind of go, what's the big deal? It's the ones who are meek, a particular group of individuals. It's drawing attention to their temperament, their lifestyle. This is what they're like on a normal basis. We're not telling you they can't lose it once in a while. And we're not trying to tell you that it means weak because it doesn't. I'll explain that in a moment. But this is a discernible action. You can identify them and recognize them by their characteristics, their outward conduct. There again the submission, the forgiveness, the forbearing. And this is the first consistent trait you can see outwardly. The second one, they're going to weep in a way that you know something's wrong. But this is one where you're going to actually see their humility come out. So the word meek, I like to use the definition of power under control. Meek is not weak. Power under control. It describes somebody who is humble, kind, forgiving, submissive, surrendered, self-abased, not spineless, not weak, or wimpy. This would describe, if you've ever seen a show where you have these stallions, you know, they're prancing and they're just gigantic horses. And and they're, they're out there, and some little kid happens uh, that part of the dad's horse and the little kid grabs the reins and he's walking this horse out. That horse is meek. It's power under control. The horse could stomp on the kid with just one stomp and put him out. The horse is choosing not to do that. This is what he's talking about when he says he's meek. When Jesus says, I am gentle, in Matthew 28, he's not describing a spineless, weak individual who can't do anything. Otherwise, you have problems when you try to look at his life and see what he did. He rebuked Peter, Matthew 16, 33. He exposed the Pharisees, Matthew 23. He cleansed the temple two times. John 2, Matthew 21. Beginning of his ministry, end of his ministry. And he formed a whip to drive out the animals. People get the wrong idea of what's in there. He's not mentally out of control. He's not screaming at them at the top of his lungs and trying to go out and hurt somebody. That is not what he's doing. He never stopped being gentle, but he was carrying out God's will. And This is where people get this mixed up. You're not allowed to have a spine. You're not allowed to speak up or to contend earnestly for the faith and to confront somebody in their sin. That's what some people claim. That's not what this is talking about. It's just the opposite of being self-assertive. You're not a bully or a tyrant or some despot, but what you are firm on and what you are doing is the work of God. That's why Jesus would cast them out of the temple. These were the Jews that knew better. They were cheating people. Buy the sheep for a dollar, sell it for ten. Change the money over. Oh, you you want um, you have a $10 bill and you want it put in. Okay, here's $5 in change back. That's what they were doing. And they were doing it around the temple and what it represented. Jesus was not weak. He was not spineless. And yet you see him in his gentleness yield his sinless life to death on the cross. That's where his gentleness came out. That's where the power under control went. When the song says he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and to set him free. Very true. But in his gentleness, that wasn't what was best for the people that were crucifying him or for the rest of us sinners. Moses was another one they talk about. Numbers 12.3, he's described as very humble. The Septuagint translation of Numbers uses the same word for meek. But look at Moses. Super humble man, and yet he killed the Egyptian. He stood up the pharaoh and the golden calf. And then he comes down from the mountain when he's all upset about their orgy they're having, and he breaks the two tablets. Uh Uh-oh. That didn't change Moses from being a gentle man. So you don't want to mix the two up. Moses thought he was doing the work of God at that point, although God made him make two more tablets. And then God wrote on them again, a little harder to write in stone the way God did. But Moses was very humble in Numbers 12.3. Abraham yielded the land to Lot in Numbers 13. Joseph forgave his brothers. Can you imagine your 11 family members? Well, Benjamin wasn't part of that. Your, Your 10 brothers doing something like that to you? And how do you show a gentleness to them? When you're the number two in the country, you can have them squished. Jailed, tortured. You can do whatever you want. And he chose not to. He showed that gentleness in his forgiveness. David protected Saul. He even spared Shimei, who was later killed because he disobeyed. But as you look at this picture here, that someone who is meek is humble, kind, forgiving, submissive, surrendered, self-abased. They are the opposite of self-assertive. And they accept personal injuries without retaliation. As long as they believe that it's in the will of God they're not going to sit there while some bully beats them up and there's no purpose to it. That's when you run. And there's appropriate times to do that. But when you're put in jail and you're persecuted for being a believer, that's when you settle and you humble yourself and you forgive those that are persecuting you. You pray for them. I'll share something with you. I don't want this to come off wrong. I don't want it to come off about me. I don't think I've ever brought it up this way before. But as I look back on my life some 32 years ago, I was pushed out of a church by a few people. It wasn't the church. In fact, a third of the church didn't even know what was going on when I finally resigned. Another third of the church ended up leaving. And, and a third there were kind of roughly being led astray in some ways. So I, I went to them and I asked if I'd sinned. Nope. No specific accusation. I didn't argue with them. I didn't accuse them. I didn't seek a split. I, they were afraid I was going to call for a vote and that the church would vote with me. I didn't do that. I didn't retaliate. I didn't fight. I learned so much from that experience. But they, they told me they wanted me to resign. I said, okay. Next morning, they had my, my resignation on the desk of the chairman. I left. One of the major things that God did in my life as I acted meekly toward being treated wrongly and a lot of lies and distortions and only got worse after that because I've told you the story about the lady that came up to me 10 years later and, and said I know you didn't do all those things and i walk walking into Ray's food market here and I go well I don't know what, what are you talking about? Oh all those things they've been saying about you for 10 years You didn't? I know you didn't do them I've been watching and she walked in the store and I that was it never talked to her again my first question, what things have I been accused of that have been going all over to pine? And I joked with her that one thing I did say back, well, I hope it's not adultery, because my wife told me if I ever committed adultery, she'd kill me. <laughs> and here I am, 10 years later, I'm not dead. So my wife doesn't think I did anything wrong in that regard. And that's when she went in the store. I learned, that it that was a turning point in my life. There are so many things that come out of that experience. And I'm not bragging, I'm telling you I finally obeyed. I finally did things God's way and I watched what he did with that. But it was probably one of the more painful things in my life as well. How are we making our decisions? Are we meek, are we really acknowledging that God is in control That I have a job to do. I need to speak up. I'm not supposed to be wimpy, spineless. That's not my goal. That wasn't the goal of Jesus Christ himself. Or Paul, or Peter. And you go down looking at these individuals. But I needed to be one who was humble, kind, forgiving, submissive, surrendered, self-abased. And let God take it from there. I'm still learning that lesson. Some days are harder than others. So this individual who's Meek is one who does not selfishly press their rights. Not what they're trying to do. And again, I keep going back. The best example I've ever seen is Jesus Christ on the cross. Totally innocent. I can never claim that. Anywhere near that, I can't claim. Totally innocent. And yet he's crucified. Horrible way to die. Designed by the Romans for maximum pain and maximum impact on those watching. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. That's meekness. These individuals that he's talking about here are the ones who are going to inherit the earth. The promise to the meek because they're submitting to God and letting him do things his way. 1 Corinthians 6 and 9 says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it goes on to give a list in 6, 9 through 11. It says it again in Galatians 5, 19 and 21. Ephesians 5, 5. We need to be recognized as being righteous. We need to be recognized as those who are Christ-like, who are perfect, who have taken the narrow road, who have built their house on the rock, Jesus Christ. It's not the house that's standing. It's the foundation. Because the same house is built on sand, and the one on sand is gone. It's Jesus Christ that's the focus. It's why meekness is so important that we understand. That I don't need to exalt myself. God may do that for purposes that he knows better than me. But I need to exalt Jesus Christ. That's what I'm after. That's why I get up and I open the day in prayer to him. I spend time in in the word with him. I go through the day and I bring up needs and I ask him for direction. I have prayer requests. I'm always searching. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Do I get discouraged? Never. Yeah, I get discouraged. And then I repent and I confess that that's not where God wants me. Wallowing in my own self-pity. And then when you get there, you always want to get revenge. You want to pay somebody back. And I gave you thousands of stories from the ministry. Pastors are a target. That's where God put me. That's where I rejoice in. That's what I've learned from. And because of my hard-headedness, it was really good for me to be in this role. Because it almost is daily when it's wham, wham, wham. And friends of mine in seminary didn't make it very long. A number of them, within three years, quit. I'm not doing this. I knew it's where God wanted me. I also knew it's what God was using in my life to help me to become more like Jesus. So he says you're going to inherit. You're going to receive possession of one's rightful inheritance. It's coming from Jesus Christ because of what he's done. The meek will obtain rule or control over the earth. I'm not going to take a lot of verses. I've been preaching too long these days. But the earth here is clearly... What has been given to men in Psalm one fifteen sixteen. It's clearly what we will reign on and over in Revelation five nine and ten. I'm still hearing it. I looked up a doctrinal statement um, just last night as I was checking out a church, and it's, it said right in there in bold print, "We're going to spend eternity in heaven." And I keep asking people, "Stop telling people stuff that isn't true." Where are believers going to spend eternity? On earth. In the new Jerusalem and serving Christ from the new Jerusalem. When I brought that up in a good news club meeting, I never should have done that either. And I told them the streets of gold were not in heaven. The whole room went, and you could hear them sucking air. I said, you know, I, you have this gold here, one of your colors with the, what do they call that hand? Wordless book. Wordless book. And then they have a hand where they do it too. And, and, the, and I, that was back in the 80s. And I, I explained to people, I said, well, you know, they, some people believe that you're going to be in heaven to get this, but the Bible doesn't tell you that. Go look for it. You're not spending eternity in heaven. I don't know why they throw that out, because people have no idea what that means. What are you going to do up there? Oh, play a harp, sit on a cloud, uh, drink. What do they drink up there? Angels food? I, I don't know what they're going to be doing. That isn't what the Bible says. God gives us concrete information about the future. In eternity with Him, you're going to shine. Remember how Jesus, when He when He was transfigured, you're going to look like that, because of Him. And now you're looking at me like, well, "How do I know that's true?" I'll throw you over to uh, Matthew 16, Matthew somewhere. I knew I shouldn't have done that, but you're not. Oh, there, Matthew 13. I looked there first and I didn't see it. Matthew 13. Verse 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And you can see other places where I have verses written down next to that. They're that going to explain that. Your new body is not going to look like the one you have now. Except it will look like the one you have now. They'll recognize you. But what if you died when you were six months old? I was holding one of the grandkids, one of John's, um, Melissa, up to the pictures, and we're going, oh, look at these pictures, and look at this. And we got to one of an old picture of John when he was just a young teenager. And I pointed, who's that? She went. She named some name, but it wasn't her dad. And it just dawns on me how much we've changed and what we lock on to. Is it your 20-year-old face? Is it your 60-year-old face if you're allowed to live that long? What are you going to look like? And what's the Bible tell you? It's none of your business. Because it isn't in there. It doesn't tell you how old Jesus is when he resurrects. You're assuming he's 33. How old were Moses and Elijah when they came back? How did they even recognize them? They'd never met them. And I joke around and tell you they had name tags on. I don't know. But so much is taught from the pulpit and the church doesn't read, it doesn't check them out. It doesn't search the scriptures daily to see if what they're being told is true or not. And so as a shepherd that has concerns for believers, true believers, I'm constantly pointing out things people get tired of me. It's like, oh you're the, you're the um, health inspector, you're, you're the Bible inspector, you're the one that, you're the fruit inspector, you're the one that's always going around inspecting. Because if I see something in your life that's not good, I want to tell you gently as a meek man for God's purposes. But I want you to do the same thing back. People usually have to work up so much courage by the time they get to me, they've either pulled out a pistol or a baseball bat. And they let me have it. I'm saying, no, 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 no. Do it a week or two earlier when you're not quite as frustrated and and come to me in a peaceful, loving way. And give me scripture. That's God's baseball bat for me. You show me something right out of scripture that I'm out of whack on, I will change. It just boom, boom, boom. God gets a hold of me. But we're here to move toward Christ likeness. We're here to grow the bride toward being ready, and she's going to make herself ready, according to Revelation, for the return of Jesus Christ. I have responsibilities. I can't make my face younger or look better or stop sagging so much or whatever else is wrong with it. But I can change the inside. I can be meek and still be a leader as Jesus was and Paul and Peter and all the rest of them. And I need to recognize that that's what I'm after. Turn with me as I close off to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. I want to remind you of one verse I shared already, verse 11. He says, but the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. And then look over at verse 22. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. You ever told an unbeliever that you're having a discussion with in a gentle, humble way, you're going to hell? First question I have is, well, you might have is, why would I ever do that? Because that's the problem. You are separated from God. You're not on the road that leads to life, that leads to abundance, that leads to happiness. You're rejecting the very person you need. You need to be poor in spirit, broken, helpless. You need to mourn over your sins as you're honest with God. And then you need to be humble. Humble. As you acknowledge Jesus Christ, and him alone is the one we're going to glorify. We're not going to bow and worship anybody else. It'll be Jesus Christ when he returns. It's been a great study in Revelation on Wednesday nights. The question comes down today, and I don't take this lightly. I don't do it very often because I don't know who's out there, but I keep forgetting that people are listening. But if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior today, it's really, really simple. But it's going to cost you everything. I have had tracks that I won't hand out. They say, God doesn't want you to change anything. And I want to take those tracks and burn them. God wants you to change everything. You can't do it. You're helpless. You need to be honest with your sins. And none of us are that way. Not even with our spouses are we really honest about all the sins that we commit. A lot of them just right up here. And it can be anything from lust to greed, to anger, to revenge, bitterness, to gossip. But then we become meek, or we humble ourselves before God and we do it His way. That's the only way. That's the road God's asking for. If you've never done that, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior because of being poor in spirit and because of mourning over your sins and because of this recognition of your gentleness, I can't do it. Then you're lost. You're on the road to hell, and it's what Jesus Christ preached on more than he did about heaven. If he did that, guess what I should be doing? But in a a nice way. Can you say hell nicely? You're on your way to hell. Do I have to whisper it or make up another word for it? All hell is is separation from God forever and ever in torment because you've rejected the happiness of his son. You've rejected the freedoms that his son has offered. As sinners, the wages of sin is death, and God pleads with us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He gave the greatest gift he possibly could to meet our needs to the fullest. And when we reject that, Hebrews 10 says that it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You leave him no options. Hell was not created for man. Matthew 25, 41. It was created for the devil and his angels. I hear all this stuff on the news. I watch too much news. But people are throwing out stuff. Even religious people are throwing out stuff. I go, wrong, wrong. Evolution, wrong. Not scientific, let alone unbiblical. What are we trusting in today? If Jesus Christ isn't the focus of your life, he isn't in your life. How about if I put it that boldly? Because the Holy Spirit comes along and spanks us true believers who are out of line. You having trouble sitting down these days? Good indicator there's something else wrong. I know these messages come across heavy, but this is what Jesus was saying. This is how the Jews understood what he was saying to them. What does it say at the very end? You have this memorized, right? You're memorizing Sermon on the Mount. How did they respond when he was all done? They were amazed. Some even want to translation say they were astounded. There's a world out there that needs the gospel. And they need it spoken, but even as much and more, they need it lived out. Because they use hypocrite as an excuse. And they don't come. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us so much that you would hang in agony and ask God, ask your Father to forgive us. We put him there. Our sin put him there. I don't deserve anything except hell. I stand up here as an imperfect individual who never can get my words out the way I really want them to be. And that's okay. Because your son is the only one who lived a sinless, perfect life. May we honor him. May we exalt him. May we worship him. May this song as we close off truly come from our hearts. That he alone is to be exalted. And if there be someone here or listen to me that doesn't know you, help them to see how easy it is to recognize Jesus Christ for who he is, your son that was sent to earth. Not only to die for our sins, but to resurrect victorious over the grave. That's the good news of salvation. May they receive it today. And may we have the privilege of sharing it this week as we seek to only exalt you. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.